Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I'm all hat and no cattle. Well, yeehaw, buddy, because this, uh, this film does get a little bit American at times uh, <laughs> that we're going to talk about. But Cam, before we grab hands and sing old Lang Syne to ring in the new year, we need to introduce our guest. Joining us now, the third to our fourth protocol, it is none other than New York Times columnist and co-host of the Unclear and Present Danger podcast is Mr. Jamil Bowie. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Hello. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's about time someone brought some class to the joint. Um, we're, we've been severely lacking for the last few years, so thank you for that, sir. <laughs> um, your podcast jumped out to me a few months ago, just looking at sort of the, some of the fantastic films you've been tackling and some of the, the crossover between the films we've been tackling, because the sort of world of espionage and the world of political thrillers does tend to get intertwined from time to time. But yeah, so it's some fantastic stuff you've been doing. But just tell us a little bit about the show. Sure thing. So um, the whole conceit of Unclear and Present Danger is that uh, we are kind of looking at America in the 1990s through the lens of these political and military thrillers that I think really proliferated during the decade. They've always been a staple of Hollywood. Um, but I think the 90s is really when they kind of explode uh, in a big way. There are a ton of them. They are, you know, they most of them have big stars, have like reasonable budgets um, and do quite well at the box office. Like the public wants to see these things. Uh, and both myself and my co-host, John, think that these uh, movies, their tropes, their plots, um, uh, the kind of particular issues they're dealing with are kind of a lens into the post-Cold War neurosis that America experiences, both having been utterly victorious, right, in the struggle against global communism or whatever, but also lost um, without this thing that essentially organized American domestic and international politics for a half a century. And so we think that the movies actually offer some insight into this and insight into the kind of things that were front of mind in the American cultural zeitgeist and political zeitgeist during the 1990s. I'm curious, which of these types of movies grabbed you, you know, initially? Like, were you always a fan? Was this something that you arrived at later? Yeah, I mean, so the other the other thing about this podcast is it's like a, it's an elaborate excuse for both of us to talk about movies that we loved growing up. Um, <laughs> Don't know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, for example, um, uh, I, you know, my parents were both in the Navy. I'm a, I'm a military brat, and I grew up loving submarine movies of various uh, stripes because we watched them all the time. I have very strong memories of like really enjoying watching like clear and present danger on TBS on a Saturday. Uh, so I, I've, I've always been a fan of a lot of these movies uh, going back to when I was a kid and they're, you know, the Jack Ryan movies in particular things I've actually just like revisited again and again, cause I just like them. I enjoy them quite a bit. One of the things that's easy to appreciate about this genre is that the kind of modest mid mid budget thriller is just like an enjoyable thing to watch. And especially in a time 
today in Hollywood, when they just don't really make this for the big screen anymore, you can find them on streaming or whatever, but it is genuinely difficult to go to a movie theater and see something of this like modest scale with a star um, with sort of reliable plot beats uh, and that'll be a good time at the movies. And so for me, it's actually, it's, 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 this is doubled in addition to the political and social stuff. It's kind of like a, a throwback to when like Hollywood was a little more balanced. Yeah. And you would have like some really top tier directors making these movies as well, which you just are less and less likely to get on streaming. Right. Right. It's it's interesting as well because like um, I was looking for a list of films you've tackled and I I listened to today uh, your coverage on the package and Under Siege and Andrew Davis films who we've had on the show previously and it's it's like it's fun to see those films from your perspective versus how we've looked at them differently as well and uh, so it's, it's really quite nice. Can you say more about that? Just like sure. So like um, I mean for me it was interesting just seeing because you're coming at these films from a more of a political standpoint and what's happening in America at the time and sort of contextualizing the films, whereas we're just sort of taking them apart from a you know, nuts and bolts. How does this work as a film? And so it's interesting hearing a film that I actually quite like, something like The Package, I don't think it gets a lot of love, coming at it from a completely different angle. Yeah. And also, of course, you know, being American versus Scots Brit, and I'm from Canada, we don't have necessarily that perspective that you would bring to it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think what we'll do is before we talk about this week's film, just to sort of ask you, Jamel, spy movies. Now you have tackled some spy movies on the show so far, but you personally, what are your thoughts on spy movies? Is there any personal ones that you really like? I, it it has taken me a a little longer to get into spy movies. I think in part because of, um, (laughs) I feel like this is a very like American movie goer thing to say. They're just like, you know, they're, they're all this talking. Give me shooting. <laughs> um, uh, no, it, I, I've only gotten, I've only come to appreciate spy movies as I've gotten um, a bit older. And um, the, so the, 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 the spy movie that I love the most that I find um, it's most interesting to me that I find most affecting is the spy who came in from the cold from 64 Um which has that wonderful Richard Burton performance, uh, sort of that, you know, that great Kafka-esque trial sequence towards the conclusion. But also, I think, is just a great representation of what is appealing about spy stories, about at least the good ones, right? Sort of like these are, um, you know, morally compromised people. These are people sort of like doing the dirty work of the state uh, and um, having to make uh, personal, political, and ideological sacrifices to do it, uh, and so that—that's that is my favorite spy movie these days. I'll kind of watch anything that's like vaguely espionage. Like it, you know, hmm. it's it's all good fun to me. Um, I don't like the Bourne movies all that much. Interesting. How come? Uh, it's mainly it's mainly just the the style of directing. It's sort of like I find. I, I, I personally find the, the, the shaky cam stuff, um, the quick cutting to be like too disorienting. Like it's just like not something that vibes with me. Um, and for those movies, like The Born Identity, you know, I think that one's pretty solid. But the sequels to me, like I, I recently rewatched, what's the sequel, what's the sequel called? The Born Supremacy. Mm-hmm. I recently rewatched that like a, two years ago. Um, and I was like, this is unwatchable to me. Like, I can't actually, <laughs> I can't actually deal with this. Um, yeah. 
It's funny how perspective works because you know our our goal here is to try and find the best spy movies of all time. That's what we do. It's why we tackle every single spy film we can get our hands on. And you you saying the identity was probably your favorite. It's actually one that didn't make the list for us. Supremacy was our favorite when we went through them all. <laughs> um, but I completely get what you mean, and especially if you compare it to these sort of films you're tackling on your show, these these '90s or very late '80s mid-budget blockbuster action films, in a way they will never go anywhere near that level of editing and cutting. They are very yeah. steady as they go. And yeah, this is a complete whiplash when you talk about the Jason Bourne films. Absolutely. Um, I think, I think in my, my like cinematic taste, I'm actually like quite old fashioned in what I prefer in terms of sort of like editing and pacing rhythms. Um, you know, give me, I, I'll prefer, right. Like, uh, uh, a two shot of just like actors chatting for, for a couple minutes, like over mm-hmm. like, virtually anything else um let a camera just stay in one position or two positions um uh for an extended sequence and i'm a happy camper and there are like kind of rare exceptions to that and even you know even when i think of non and you know, I, I think of a movie like mission impossible the 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 palma mission impossible which is a a, a movie i love um love the palma love how the palma that movie is mm-hmm. um uh even that one has much more of that kind of like steadier style. Um, uh, even when it's in these moments of creating lots of tension, uh, it, it De Palma has a very classical camera. It's interesting that you said the James Bond films initially reacted to the Bourne and went with Quantum of Solace and decided to make it all very quick cutty, but then they realized that maybe wasn't the way to go. And they are sort of the flag bearer of, of spy movies, a lot of people would say, at least anyway. So it's interesting that they sort of tried to adjust to the Bourne style uh, and then decided to pivot back to what is more of a normal editing and pacing style. And by the end of No Time to Die, I'd say it's about the same as a Mission Impossible film, really. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, when, when, we, when, we, when I saw No Time to Die, I was like, this is a Christopher McQuarrie movie. Like, this is this is sort of like, uh, if Christopher McQuarrie were to do a Bond movie, it would have looked something like this. Uh, well, you mentioned you prefer the old-fashioned, and I think we've got a little bit of that this week. <laughs> Cam, I'll throw it to you, sir. What are we talking about? Yes, we are tackling 1987's The Fourth Protocol, starring Michael Caine and Pierce Brosnan. And Cam, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention we also have a very special guest joining us this week. A very, very special guest. Quite right. Uh, It's hard to list this man's filmography. It's longer than my arm, but he's been a big part of a lot of films that you know and love, including this week's film, The Fourth Protocol. It is Mr. Julian Glover. That's right. Yeah, not just this film, but also Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Game of Thrones, the TV show, and then also uh, a little film called For Your Eyes Only. Yeah, we haven't quite spoken about that yet, but uh, maybe we will. Maybe. We'll see. Hmm. Well, that's coming out this Friday, so make sure you hit subscribe and it will be in your feeds when you wake up in the morning. Look forward to it. But Cam, let's get back to it. Now, for those of you who have never heard of this film, here is your synopsis. The Fourth Protocol, led by Kim Philby, Plan Aurora, is a plan that breaches the top-secret Fourth Protocol and turns the fears that shaped it into a living nightmare. A crack Soviet agent placed undercover in a quiet English country town begins to assemble a nuclear bomb whilst an MI5 agent attempts to prevent its detonation. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about mid-budget films. Yep, okay, this is uh, 
definitely in that sort of way. It explains what a fourth protocol is about as well as the movie does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, halfway through, I was like, what, what, what exactly is the fourth protocol here? Like, what are we talking about? I don't know. There's that opening text where they're like, mm. there was four protocols. Three of them no longer exist, but one does. It's like, wait, what? What are the protocols? <laughs> Maybe by the end of the show, we'll have figured out what the protocols are. <laughs> one can only hope. Now, I was, uh, I was born in the year 1987, so I definitely didn't see this in theaters because I was naught. Uh, Cam, you were about 50. So, you know, what about you? Did you any, any sort of connection to it at all? None whatsoever. I feel like I missed a number of these kind of Michael Caine um, sort of action thrillers of like the 80s. Because mm-hmm. um, I think Blue Ice is another one on our list to tackle. That's in the early 90s. But another one just completely slipped by my radar. But Scott, you had seen this movie before though, right? Only in the last sort of six months. Oh, okay. Just when we were, I was preparing for an interview. And so I was just watching it somewhat because it was in their sort of filmography. I watched it for that basically. But yes, yeah, so it's not something I sort of held to. But it is a film that gets referenced to us online quite a lot by mm-hmm. our listeners. Like when you get a tackle for Protocol, it is somewhat beloved by I would say the 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 spy movie fans out there. Uh, Jamel, what about you? Had you ever come across this film before? No, no, I never um, uh, came across this one before. I think it's maybe we ha- we have a, a Patreon fee that's like just Cold War movies, and I think it's like on the list to do eventually there. Um, but I had never seen it before. And I'm also, I was also born in 87. So when it came out, I was, you know, a child. We we were still very young. It's fine. Yeah. It makes sense. We we were the first protocol. <laughs> <laughs> and we should note that this movie's like distribution is not great. Uh, and that perhaps is part of the reason that we'd never really come across it because it's on YouTube now. So everyone can watch it, but it's not a movie that's out actively on, you know, streaming uh, there's no boutique Blu-rays right now out there. So, yeah. No, it's strange. I mean, it is up on YouTube and we'll have a link in the show notes below if it's still there by the time this episode comes out for you to go and check it out if you haven't seen it already. But Cam, I'm quite curious. Um, are We all need to join in the fight against world communism. So can you help us by telling us how this film was made? Yes. So this movie was uh, obviously running off of the Frederick Forsyth bestseller, which was published in 1984. It was an insta-hit. And we talked about Forsyth before when we talked about The Day of the Jackal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was obviously a very early hit for him. And Michael Caine is a buddy of Freddy, as he calls him. <laughs> and uh, so he read Freddy's manuscript and said, hey, this is really cool. We should both exec produce this and make it into a film. Uh, before they could make it to the screen, it was adapted into a video game in 1985 for oh. ZX Spectrum and Commodore 64 uh, computers. Um, I had a Commodore back in the day. I never played the fourth protocol game. Do you still have a Commodore? No, I wish. I oh, wish. Man. I'd love to see it. <laughs> I'll go see if I can find a Wii play of this on YouTube and watch the gameplay. I wonder what it's like. I wonder if it's anything like it. Probably not. It's probably like the ET game on Atari. I was thinking it's more like text based. You know, like when you input oh. like what you're doing. Because if it's like Commodore, you have a keyboard sometimes yeah that's true i did have like on the commodore like the games were often very basic arcade style games so just like us exactly yes very basic uh and so they were going to raise the financing themselves for this movie they hired a writer george axelrod who was pretty prestigious new york born started off in the late 40s uh, in tv and just 
went on a real run. Like he co-wrote the screenplay for The Seven-Year Itch, which was based on a play that he had uh, written. Uh, that's, of course, the um, big Billy Wilder comedy starring Marilyn Monroe. He also um, wrote the Marilyn Monroe film Bus Stop, got an Oscar nomination for co-writing Breakfast at Tiffany's, and uh, uh, wrote and produced The Manchurian Candidate in 1962 for John Frankenheimer. So he was someone who was obviously a name, um, and they brought him on, and at a certain point they had issues because they wanted to hire John Frankenheimer to direct the film Mm -hmm. as well. They wanted to go for that really kind of prestige political thriller. But financing was very, very difficult. They found there was no money they could get in L.A. Um, Michael Caine had a quote about this. He said, one studio exec pointed out to him that Goldie Hawn had just made a movie called Protocol and it bombed. I guess they thought a film called The Fourth Protocol would lose four times as much money. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sort of thing you'd hear in Hollywood, absolutely. That is the sort of nonsense an exec would come out with. Yeah, 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 that that seems um, actually like a classic Hollywood exec move to, to look for the most <laughs> trivial thing about the thing that failed or succeeded and say, let's do more of that or do less of that. Exactly. So they turned actually to British money and investors to get this made and managed to raise the um, seven million pounds to get it. And they, both Kane and Forsyth gave up their fees. But at this point, also, like just because of money being kind of a little tighter, they had Frederick Forsyth just basically took on the script himself and wrote it. And this was his only ever full screenplay credit. He has a lot of, obviously, credits for having his work turned into TV shows and films, but he never wrote a full screenplay again. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a credit on the film for additional material by a writer named Richard uh, Burridge. Seems to mostly be a punch-up guy. He only has about six credits on IMDb. But um, most notably being, well, probably this film, but he also did a couple of things like uh, ABC Man Trap and the film Absolute Beginners starring Patsy Kensett and David Bowie. Oh, Patsy Kensett. Do you remember where you've seen her before on Spy Hearts? Oh, she was a kid in, um, oh, Hanover Street. There you go. Wow. British legend Patsy Kensett, apparently. That's right. Mm. <laughs> and they uh, then hired John McKenzie, who's a Scottish director who'd gotten his start in the mid-60s as a production assistant before moving into TV. His career is like interesting because he really bounces between just TV shows, low-budget dramas, but he kind of strikes it somewhat big in 1980 with the movie The Long Good Friday with Bob Hoskins yeah. and, um, and Helen Mirren and Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing movie, incredible film. And um, Bob Hoskins at the end, like the last few scenes, gives just one of the great all time kind of like face performances um, in that film. So highly recommend it. And do you remember Pierce Brosnan's small part in it? I do not. OK. I mean, he's ca- he's um, credited as first Irishman. So I don't think it's the most showy of roles. <laughs> right. okay. OK, OK. So basically, Mackenzie has that kind of big breakout, but then he still bounces really between just TV. He does some music videos. He does a Paul McCartney video for Take It Away. Um, he did direct a Michael Caine film, a Graham Greene adaptation called Beyond the Limit. But right before this movie, he was doing like a Charles Bronson TV movie called Act of Vengeance. So he was never someone who had like a full-on A-list career. He very much bounced between TV and film. And he actually closed off his career in 2003 with another Michael Caine film 
uh, pairing him up with Michael Keaton in 2003 called Quicksand. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of that film at all, but I, I do want to see a film with Michael Caine and Michael Keaton. Yeah. Try saying that really fast five <laughs> times in a row. Michael Caine, Michael Keaton. Michael Caine, Michael Keaton. And uh, this was Brosnan's first film after losing the Bond role. As we all know, he was up for The Living Daylights, couldn't get it because of Remington Steele renewing its contract on him. And so he wound up in this, and he was actually picked by uh, Mackenzie, who remembered him as the first Irishman on uh, The Long Good Friday, <laughs> and said like... The second one? No, he wasn't <laughs> any good. But that first Irishman, ah, oh, he, he had some promise. He could have been James Bond. Just imagine <clears throat> looking like Pierce Brosnan. He would have been what? Um... 32 yeah. 33 around this time um looking like pierce bros in your early 30s and like or I, I guess long good friday in your in your late 20s and then like your cast as first irishman <laughs> like that's no name nothing that's just that's what you got at least he was the first i don't know right that he who he would the first one ever yeah <laughs> he, he created ireland apparently <laughs> Well, I came across an interview um, with Mackenzie about the film, and they asked him when Brosnan came into his head, and he said, almost immediately. He said he came up with three names, but Brosnan was the one he very, very quickly honed in on because he, going through the script, really realized he wanted someone who was very personable and had sex appeal, and clearly the first Irishman stuck with him. I, I think it might be Remington Steel ever so slightly. That was quite a big show, at least in North America. How dare you, Scott? Just, How dare you? I'm just, I'm just maybe putting it out there. It, it could have been that. So, as I said, the movie had a budget of about seven million pounds. Um, domestically, it did. So weird, you saying pounds in that. Sentence. I know, right? You always say I, dollars. I, That's so weird. What's the dollar uh, translation on that, Scott? I mean, right now the pound is in the tank, so probably about seven million dollars. <laughs> to be fair. Yes, in 1987, I, I wasn't sure. So um, domestically, it did 12.4 million. And the international numbers on this movie are just impossible to find. I did find a spreadsheet indicating a lot of what movies in the 80s made in the UK. So I can tell you this movie made a little over 750,000 pounds. I don't know if that's good or not. I mean, it's obviously not good, good, but like, I don't know if that's on par for what a mid-budget film would make in the 80s? Yeah, like I was looking for comparisons. Um, for example, Hellraiser 2 did about 900-something thousand, so like 200,000 more. Uh, Hellraiser 2 is probably one of the better ones, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah, The Living Daylights did 8.2 million. In the UK? Yeah, in the UK. Okay, right. Now I've got to... Okay, now I see where we're sitting. Mm-hmm. All right, so I just did a... I just uh, looking this up real quick. Um, uh, seven million pounds in dollars in the 1980s would have been about 11.4 million dollars. Okay. Um, or 1987, and if you plug that into an inflation calculator, that's about uh, uh 30 million dollars today. 29.4. So very like mid budget, or even a little bit lower budget, actually. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. Which, considering the movie, is actually kind of impressive because it's. Not unambitious in what it's trying to get across. No. What's more impressive is Jamel's Googling skills. That was That's some uh, off-the-cuff stuff. That's some frontier Googling right there. I like uh, it. Uh, professional journalist skills. Go on, Cam. Go on, Cam. And so because of the international numbers being tough to find, in the worldwide box office rankings, it lands at number 81 for the year between The Bedroom Window, 
which I'd never heard of, and is a Steve Gutenberg erotic thriller, which is a sentence <laughs> I never thought I'd say. And also Less Than Zero, the drug drama with uh, Robert Downey Jr. A lot of numbers in these titles around that time as well. Yeah. I would have thought that would be a bigger hit at the time, but uh goes to show. Mm. And the top three for the year. Number one was Three Men and a Baby. Number two was Fatal Attraction. And number three was Beverly Hills Cop 2. A good year. Yeah. Where was Living Daylights in all this? A little bit further down. Living Daylights was at number 19. It was not as big a hit as we typically associate with Bond films. Yeah, I bet I bet uh, I bet Pierce was watching the box office for that very very uh very closely, thinking about what he could have done. I mean, looking at him in this film, mm-hmm. I just think, man, he would have been great in Living Daylights. Not 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 to do a detour, but what do you guys think of the Living Daylights? I stand by it. I stand by it. Okay. I love the first hour or so. Yeah. I find once it heads to Afghanistan, the pace really really releases out and I I, it's one that I feel constantly pro- like compelled to rewatch because so much of Bond fandom is really in the pocket for The Living Daylights. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like I walk out liking it, but never quite able to love it. I'm, I'm on the same page. I think that first hour or so is really great, just like terrific. And I think that it's held back from greatness just by sort of this, um, I don't know. Uh, not it's not boring something, but just sort of like drawn out and like not to me not particularly compelling sort of like second half. It's like it's going through um, the motions basically in mm-hmm. the back half. Right? Yeah, yeah. This is exactly what it's like. So, oh, we have to do this in the Bond movie, so we're doing it. But um, the early stuff where you know you have uh, Dalton sort of just like grittier Bond. I think that's I think it's great. I think it's like top tier. Uh, Bond filmmaking. Uh, stop it! You're booking yourself for your next visit. By the sounds of it, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I watched it in the theaters. Uh, this this past year with like Mariam Darbo sitting ten seats down from me, w- sitting watching the whole film, and I'm just thinking, "Golly, this is a great film." And then you just get to the prison cell in Afghanistan, and you think, "Oh, there it goes. The, the, the lead goes out the the air goes out the balloon." I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Hey ho. And uh, the only other note I had on this one was that. Michael Caine followed this film up with Jaws the Revenge, which he was actually asked about on the interview circuit because at that, around that time he was unable to collect his Oscar in person because he was filming Jaws the Revenge. So on the press tour for The Fourth Protocol, a lot of people were asking him about missing that to go film Jaws the Revenge. Is that what he said about the old, uh, I know about the thing it, it paid for, or is that later on? I think that's later on. I could not find him actually saying that in these interviews at least. All right. Fair enough. Well, we're here. We've arrived at our destination. Now we need to know whether we enjoyed the fourth protocol or did it? Did we get bored stiff? <laughs> Jamel, you're our guest. You've boldly ventured onto the show. We want to hear, what do you think of the fourth protocol? I I got kind of bored at, at the midpoint of the movie. Um, I think that there's basically like 15 minutes too much movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this film, even I'm looking. I'm looking at the the timestamp right now. Uh, it's about two hours long. You could knock off 20 minutes from this movie, no problem. <laughs> um, but I'll say that once it became clear, like how things were going to resolve in the, the final act, I like it caught my attention again. And I did find the beginning really uh, compelling. Anytime Michael Caine was on screen for an extended period of time, I'm like, yeah, more of this, like more Michael Caine being like a a, a, a spy type stuff. Um, more, what's his name? Um, uh, the UK House of Cards guy, whose name I always forget. 
uh, Ian Richardson. Right. Um, more Ian Richardson, more Michael Go. Uh, anytime those guys were on the screen, I was like, this is in my exact comfort zone. Old, old British guys talking spy craft. <laughs> I'm a happy camper. And then um, for his... Um, Magnetic as as Pierce Brosnan can be, I actually found so much of his sort of spycraft stuff to be kind of boring um, to watch. But then, like, important thing to say about me, I love movies about bureaucracy. So anything that's, like, bureaucratic, I'm kind of, like, I'm a fan of it. Men in in rooms with mahogany tables is is your jam. Oh, yeah. The (laughs) Russia House, great movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're gonna be tackling that relatively soon. I've never seen it, so yeah. Um, I to be fair, I I think we could probably agree a lot of that. But it's interesting that that whole tipping point with we just talked about Living Daylights, and now we're talking about this, where it just falls off in the back half in uh, both films in '87 as well. I I wonder what it is about that, that that causes the energy to go because as you say, it does sort of pick up at the end. You have the assault on the house and the sort of chase sequence with the the van going off road. That's all quite fun. But there's that, yeah, the investigative sequence where he's just, Michael Caine's just doing stuff and, and Pierce Brosnan's just collecting items and all the stuff with Joanna Cassidy as well. Is that where sort of the 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 pace falls for you, Jamel? Yes, yes, yeah. that's exactly it. Like it, it's, it's sort of, the, the, the point at which my attention started to wane actually is like when Pierce Brosnan goes to that bar. Right, okay, on the, is it the one on the American base? Yeah, on the American base. Mm. Okay. Um. Yeah, that's when I'm sort of like, I don't need this. <laughs> with Matt Frewer as like the wacky neighbor? That's who that was. Yeah, with Matt Frewer as the wacky neighbor. Yeah. And, and what was going on with that wife? That was a... I don't know. Can, was... can I curse on here? Go for it. Yeah, she wanted to fuck him. That's all. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, I'm surprised that he didn't. That was the thing that surprised me more. Um, There's a lot of scenes of like Brosnan being turned on <laughs> and like... Basically making like groaning noises by himself. Looking out the window longingly at the orgy next door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Cam, what about you? What did you think of the fourth protocol? The fourth protocol was really interesting in that it felt to me in many ways like a kind of a pot boiler version of like Day of the Jackal. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of similarities between the two. And I really found myself kind of enjoying the movie, even if I was like, okay. The pace is real slow in the back half. And I know Michael Caine has talked about how they set out to make a real like run and gun kind of thriller. And he was kind of not the happiest that he wound up. He felt with like kind of a talky film. And uh, he said, you know, as as a producer, he really thought he'd have a lot of power and could fix that. And it just ultimately was not the case. I I found I didn't really have an issue with how talky it was. Um, I think felt at times that it was Frederick Forsyth, as I said, this was his first screenplay, and it felt like someone trying to turn their novel into a screenplay and not quite sure what to cut. Because, you know, like Jamel, like there's a lot of British character actors up front where I'm like, oh my God, like this is amazing. Just like the best of the best, spouting exposition. And I would happily sit there and follow along. And then there was like points where things didn't really pay off and you'd spend a fair amount of time talking and talking about things that just didn't really factor into the plot. And it didn't feel like the movie was necessarily ultra focused, which I can kind of understand if you're the writer, you're kind of in love with these concepts you've come up with and you want to, you know, play out these scenes. Um, So I found it was a little messy up front, even though I was consistently entertained because again, it's like the best British character actors ever. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and a Michael Caine kind of strolling through the middle of it like a middle-aged Harry Palmer. This is in many ways a better Harry Palmer sequel than those TV movies we got. We don't talk about you know, those. as a belated. We don't talk about those. No, we don't talk about those. As a belated follow-up to Harry Palmer, this is far more interesting and has the same butting up with authority you get in those movies mm-hmm. with, you know, Julian Glover's <laughs> character in this movie. Uh, so it was sort of like a movie that, as I said, it kind of falls in that sort of B-grade territory where I'm like, I'm liking kind of this somewhat muddled spy espionage stuff in the front half and the thriller aspects in the back, while slower paced than perhaps they should be to be really effective, there was enough little set pieces or moments and especially the Brosnan performance that carried me through. Yeah, I understand. I mean, I, I did not expect this film to have a scene with Christatos telling off uh, Harry Palmer. Yeah, I did. I did not expect to see that, but I was glad it was there. And I think, you know, just for me, I think it's a it's a real shame, this film, because I really love bits that it does. It has some really cool set pieces. There's this wonderful shot towards the end of helicopters flying under a bridge. I don't know why that shot looks so wonderful, but it does. Oh, yeah. But it's got, and look at the cast, Michael Caine, Pierce Brosnan, Julian Glover, Michael Goh, Joanna Cassidy, who I think is underutilized in every single thing I've ever seen her in. And yet it doesn't live up to that potential. It's like the Day of the Jackal light, or it's or octopusy light. There's a lot of octopusy similarities, yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, and, and that's not to say I didn't enjoy parts of it. Like I said, there's loads of scenes I really enjoy, and, and I, I agree. I think the, the first half is a lot punchier, especially the sort of, the start with all the set pieces and everything get sort of you know setting the pieces together on the chessboard and everyone's sort of alignment and putting that all together i think is really cool and the inclusion of kim philby which i thought was an interesting thing to see i think it's our first brush with kim philby in a spy film so far on the show yeah you talked about philby on the stranger among friends uh, episode but spy among friends sorry spy among friends yeah yeah and so it's the first time we've seen him this is obviously a fictional a representation of Kim Philby, but it it's interesting to see him woven into it as well. All really great intrigue, but I think it just sort of squanders what it could have been. Maybe it is what you said. Maybe it's that Frederick Forsyth trying to, you know, really hard to turn his book into a film, but overworking it. It's possible. I mean, I watched an interview with him about this, and they asked, you know, now that you've written your first real screenplay, would you like to do it again? And he was kind of like, I'm going to say neither yes nor no. Uh, so it was clear that like, it was a tough process for him. It w- it wasn't something that I think he just dashed off and just loved every moment of. No, I completely get that. Um, well, let's, let's talk about things that we did like. Jamel, I'll throw it to you first. Just something you want to pick up from your likes of the film. Um, sure thing. Uh, like I said, I, the moments in the film where we have both at the beginning and the first act and then in the conclusion where we have sort of our British character actors um, just sort of discussing the basically the plot uh, exposition dump sort of letting you know what's happening. I'm always a fan of that stuff and I, I do find it actually quite compelling. Um, the scenes um, with uh, uh, Ned Beatty, uh, I liked a lot. Uh, this is in part because I'm a big Ned Beatty fan. I think he's wonderful whenever he shows up. Uh, I appreciate that he made no attempt at an accent, as far as I could tell. Um, <laughs> and I actually do really appreciate this. I, I'm a fan of just sort of asking an audience, be like, yeah, listen, this guy's supposed to be Russian. Obviously, he can't, he doesn't have a Russian accent. So just like go with it, just like live with it um, and use your imaginations. 
I just when you mentioned, I just pulled up that helicopter shot. It is a very lovely shot um, uh, of the helicopters going through uh, under the bridge through, through the air and landing. Uh, I'm trying to think of particular sequences that I really thought were effective when the uh, when the was it Russian agent Russian soldier gets hit by the truck. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was really well played. It surprised me; wasn't expecting it to happen. Yeah. Lots of discrete things. And again, uh, anytime a sequence is like punctuated with people talking in a room, like the about the midpoint in the film when Michael Caine is being um, kind of like chewed out by his superiors and he's chewing them out. Hmm. Love it. Um, but it's for whatever reason with this movie, it's like actually when when it's just when people this is sounds insane to say about a film, but when people are doing things. <laughs> Uh, and not just talking and yelling. Yeah, uh, I think it becomes like strangely less compelling. It just sort of it doesn't doesn't move um, in the way I think it should. If that makes any sense. No, it does. And I think you look at Frederick Forsyth's work in Day of the Jackal. It's all about the characters and the sort of chase to get to the end. I I, I don't really care what the Jackal is doing in terms of his actions, but it's more like the character you're you're caring about, and also the sort of detective that's chasing him. And this film is, I think, for me. Where it, where it works is the characters. You want to spend time with Michael Caine hanging out with other people and doing stuff. But when he, he's actually doing sort of the, the shoe leather of investigating this cadaver that they found or like the, the, the chap that got run over at the docks in Glasgow, for instance, that, that's not so interesting. I wonder if it's also, you know, when you look at Jackal, there are a lot of tracking sequences in that film. Yes. And that movie was directed by Fred Zinneman, who was like one of the all-time great directors and clearly really, really knew how to make those sequences compelling. And I mean, maybe that's just not this director's strengths. Like, because a lot of this movie is surveillance. Yeah. It is a lot of scenes of Michael Caine sitting in a van, for example, just watching Pierce Brosnan or the various people they're tracking throughout the course of the movie, the other leads, just waiting to see things happen. And if you have someone who can really shoot that in a really gripping way and edit it you know, to perfection, the audience will be on the edge of their seats. But when you are sitting at the end of this movie, watching him slowly, slowly kind of get to the situation where they can capture um, Pierce Brosnan, it doesn't feel like kind of that tightening of the screws. It feels more like you're sitting there waiting for the you know the timer on the uh, <laughs> on the clock to k- kick in so you can have the confrontation i think that's a really great point about sort of the um the lack of dynamism in the surveillance scenes because it takes a, it actually is quite difficult to make surveillance look compelling on screen because you're sort of you're watching someone watching something and that's just never very fun like the the great film about surveillance the conversation kind of depends in the movie itself, on you know you the, the viewer knowing that there are multiple cameras operating at the same time and like lots of cutting between those cameras. And I mean the whole conceit of the movie is that, you know, the um the conversation's hard to piece together. And so that's sort of where the dynamism of the surveillance comes from. But in the absence of anything to really just sort of like illustrate or 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 or, or, or add movement to the surveillance, it just seems it's just kinda like Let's move on to the next thing, please. I thought a lot about The French Connection as well, another Gene Hackman movie, uh, where there's many scenes of him just tailing people. Right. And the way that Friedkin can make it feel so edgy or seat. And here, mm, yeah. 
I remember our conversation with Dan Mindell about Spy Game and the 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 lengths they went to to make the boardroom sequences of them just talking about things may seem dynamic and i i think tony scott achieved that in that film but it is definitely a hard thing to do i mean it, yeah it, 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 with tony scott though it's sort of like yeah if we just do like some you know like uh it looks like the film running off and we do something crazy visual then then you know that'll <laughs> make it look dynamic uh i love tony scott no no disrespect to the memory of the great tony scott <laughs> I would honestly happily, though, watch multiple scenes of Michael Caine and Julian Glover yelling at each other because, like, I thought those were great punctuations throughout this movie that whenever, you know, Michael Caine would go out, come back with findings, you'd have the two of them going at each other in a, you know, in a different movie, you would find that very tiresome, kind of the uh, the cliche of the police chief that keeps yelling at them after every single moment of the investigation. But here, the two actors are so dynamic that it was actually just a lot of fun to watch. No, I completely agree. But uh, Cam, what about you? Something you liked? Uh, Pierce Brosnan, I thought was a real surprise. Because, you know, when you tell me that he's going to be playing a Soviet spy who's ruthless, uh, akin to Edward Fox in Day of the Jackal, I'm kind of like, Brosnan? Mm -hmm. It didn't really, like, strike me as an obvious casting choice. And on the uh, interviews I was mentioning that I watched, the interviewer, because it was the same woman interviewing all the various people associated with the movie, Mm -hmm. she brought up Brosnan's casting to every single person and was like, should you have done this? Like audiences have a very strong relationship with Brosnan because of Remington Steele and you are not giving them that. And it seemed like it was much more, I think, I don't know if I'd say controversial, but at least people had feelings about it, seeing him in this type of role. And he's so good at it. Like there's a real coldness to him in this movie. There's some brutality. There's the scene very similar also to the day of the Jackal where he picks up a, a man and takes him, you know, for like a romantic moment, and then basically kills him. Mm-hmm. We get the same kind of scene in Day of the Jackal. I was genuinely blown away at how like brutal that moment was. And you give him several scenes like that throughout the film, and I just kept wondering. He's so effective in this kind of like almost like Terminator mode in his biker gear. Um, but why did we never see Brosnan do many more roles like this? We saw some interesting spy performances for sure, but not a lot to this kind of like cold-edged mercenary style. He gets a he gets a kind of a dark turn in the November Man which we haven't tackled yet but I've I've seen before. Right. So you can look forward to that. But yeah, it, you know, audiences wouldn't come to hate Pierce Brosnan until 1993's Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> How dare you. It was a run by fruiting. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly was. Um I think for me uh, we've we kind of tackled sort of the big things I really liked. I, I'll just talk about Kane for a second, Michael Kane. It's great to see him because Michael Kane at this point was going through a bit of a down period in his career. The roles weren't that great. I mean, Blue Ice, is, which we mentioned earlier, tends to get a lot of flack thrown at it. I mean, it's named after the toilet cake that is in urinals. It's not a good start for a film. <laughs> You've also got the Harry Palmer TV movies. He's just not going through a good period. He's not getting the right roles. It looks like he's having a good time in this film. and It looks like he's engaged with it. I find him I find him as as enjoyable as I do in the Harry Palmer films in this and I think judging by my, the other Michael Caine performances I've seen so far on the show and outside of this this is exactly the Michael Caine I like to see. He seems much more engaged here and we tackled Jaws the Revenge on the Patreon. He seems much more <laughs> engaged here than uh he did in that film for sure. <laughs> I I wonder why. <laughs> no kidding. Hey, I re- I respect the man who just wants a check. I get that. Oh yeah. 
Isn't that the great British actor tradition? You just take all these types of movies. Laurence Olivier would take, you know, random B movies and always make them fun. I support it. Why do you think I'm here? Exactly. Thanks, Mm. Scott. (laughs) You're welcome. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? If you want to be a podcast lover, you better check out the latest Agents in the Field on the notorious 1997 Spice Girls vehicle, Spice World. People of the world, get ready to spice up your life. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Uh, well, let's... Uh... Let's kick a hole in my British reserve and talk about things we didn't like with this film. Uh, Jamel, something you want to bring up you didn't like. I think I've sort of already t- touched on it. And that is just, I think that um, for all, for as much as I'm interested or what's interested in scenes of our characters debating with each other, arguing with each other, sort of like um, um, confronting each other. I thought that there were just long chunks of the film um, that were that were inert Mm -hmm. Um, things were happening, but they didn't feel especially compelling. Um, The the scene you mentioned, the scene when he picks up the, when Pierce Brosnan's character picks up the guy and kills him sort of like that little contained thing was interesting, but I actually found much of Pierce Brosnan's what he's depicted as doing sort of like his, his setting up his plan to just be, to just be kind of boring. Like I said at the top that you could probably knock 20 minutes off of this movie. And I think a lot of that 20 minutes is just going to come from trimming down those scenes, keeping them much shorter. Um, uh, uh, in part because there's no one he is interacting with, right? There's no one the bras and characters interacting with that really does anything on the screen. Um, uh, it's not until relatively late in the film that you meet his sort of like fake wife and, and she doesn't have much to do. So it's sort of, it's him alone kind of moving from place to place, you know, like getting this, uh, uh, scheme set up. And I just think that you can keep that stuff pretty, pretty short. You can, you can clip that a bit. And I think, I think it slows down to the extent that the film really has any momentum. I think that it slows down the momentum of the film. I was, I actually made a note of a couple of like mini subplots that were just in this film for no reason whatsoever. You've got this whole story of Michael Caine's son who's just hanging around. I'm not sure why he's there. Sorry. It's for that freeze frame at the end. Right. Yeah, they had to build to that. The, 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 <laughs> the abrupt The ending. ultimate sight in this uh, in this film. And also the, the wife next door of the of the American base. Now, I know there's some, something interesting for Brosnan to tackle. I'm sure it's in the book. But does it does it add anything to the end point of that character? I'm not sure it does, apart from giving us really cool shots of him looking sexually frustrated. <laughs> it seems to be a character thing for him, though, because it's all building up to the Joanna Cassidy sex scene, I suppose. Is that is that why I said? Do you think it's like a release thing? He's just he's just I don't know. Got it on the brain. I think it's someone who's like it's like someone who's so tightly wound and controlled throughout the course of the film, 
And when you have him, yeah, like <laughs> doing the like DiCaprio biting his fist <laughs> uh, gif uh, as he's like seeing the uh, strip poker outside his window and things like that. Um, I think it is kind of just building up this character's kind of unwinding with Cassidy and then ultimately uh, killing her. Uh, Cam, what about you? I dislike. Well, I want to touch on something, which is that I think um, what you guys were saying, where the Brosnan stuff is kind of vague. And I wonder if it's because like when you watch Day of the Jackal, you don't know what he's doing, but the investigators are kind of guiding you along behind him the entire way, somewhat, you know, establishing what the scheme is, like where we are going. Whereas Brosnan, his character, they're not looking at him for the majority of the movie. They're following other leads. And so you don't have kind of like the experts panel chiming in on what exactly he is doing. Mm -hmm. And so you get a lot of scenes of him just going and meeting with people, picking things up in a park or whatever, you know, basically picking up a radio and walking away. And it's not really until you get the full explanation of the nuclear bomb plot, the scene where him and Cassie are putting the bomb together that kind of things click into place and you have a sense as to where you're going. I, I wonder if they should have had maybe a little more upfront basically pulling along the investigation in his direction so you can have a sense as to how he's eluding them or what he's doing. I think one of the things that the, I mean, if we, we should be comparing it to Day of the Jackal, but it's like from the same writer, so I can see why we're going that way. But yeah. one thing that I think the Day of the Jackal does, not the Jackal, the Day of the Jackal does really well is you don't see it, uh, the, the Jackal's plan so much, but you see you feel the specter of the investigation on him and it becomes more desperate as the film goes on. Yeah. I don't think at any point until literally when his house is being invaded, does Pierce Brosnan have any idea that he's being followed? I think that's a really great observation about the problem with the movie that there's there, there the, the, whatever dramatic tension exists, exists in you, the viewer knowing that something might be happening, but the character that's supposed to be the antagonist feels none of it. Um, and I think that's just like that just like I think it like drains the film of the kind of tension you want for this. What I guess is supposed to be like a cat and mouse kind of kind of plot. And in Day of the Jackal, it really helps underline just how smart and clever the Edward Fox character is. Whereas with Brosnan, there's nothing to kind of get that across. Like, is he as exemplary as they say he is? We don't really have anything to back that yeah. knowledge up. Yeah, I I agree. I I think uh, Jamel, you uh, you took my point and made it sound in, yeah, interesting. There, so thank you for that. <laughs> you uh, you definitely lifted me up there. Thank you. Um, it just has me thinking. I recently for uh, uh for our podcast, we recently watched the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy uh series from the the seventies or whatnot. Sure. Yeah. And um, I mean, what, the great thing about that miniseries is it is just like it is a long form investigation like that's what it is and it's uh alec guinness's character you know it's just him interviewing people basically for for several hours but it's because um uh the the miniseries makes clear that the mole knows that he's being interviewed you may not not you may not know the viewer who the mole is but the mole knows that he's being investigated and the mole is putting up obstacles in the way of, of Guinness's character that helps maintain dramatic tension throughout yeah i absolutely agree and i think um i think i'm just going to chuck in my dislike uh because i've got a little a couple of little ones but they really do amount to what you guys have been saying i feel like there's just a lack of humanity in this film 
there's a coldness to it, but it goes beyond what we would expect from some of these uh, darker spy movies. I think it, it just seems very clinical at times, and it's kind of hard to latch on to anyone. Even Michael Caine, and they give you his son, and he seems to have a lovely home life, and he's got a maid and stuff. It's it's wonderful, I guess, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it's the holidays I, it's, the, it's the holidays apparently but uh, I, I didn't really feel a connection to anyone I wonder if that's just something to do with the script because I've certainly felt connected to Michael Caine and other projects before I don't think it's his acting I just think there was just a, a coldness to it so when you're watching this cold film for two hours it also gets a bit sleepy in the back half it, it's a bit of a rough sit I don't know that they were utilizing Kane the best in terms of screen time because I often felt like he got lost in the movie and then he would kind of pop back in whereas like you know you look at Michael Lonsdale and Jackal and it's like even though the audience is much more interested in what the Jackal is doing Lonsdale is a consistent presence throughout whereas I feel like Kane sometimes would pop out for long stretches yeah because I think it wanted to give screen time to Pierce Brosnan because he was still quite a big name at the time he had been announced as Bond and then they stepped down because of the whole Remington Steel thing so they had quite the coup having him and then this former big spy from the 60s Michael Caine I guess from like a marketing campaign that's actually a really good thing to market I'm not sure they did but yeah yeah Palmer versus Bond yeah uh <laughs> how yeah. many years away was this from Never Never Again Octopussy yeah a few years off from that I suppose uh yeah about four years yeah yeah uh, I did have one additional dislike, only because it's so effing weird, and that is, why did they choose to make uh, creating a nuclear bomb sexy? <laughs> what was up with that? Like the lighting, there was mood lighting. There was like soft focus. Uh, she would, and like you see, like sweat dripping down the brow of Joanna Cassidy as she would like her hands would delicately <laughs> assemble the nuclear bomb. I just think, okay, I, I get you're going for something, but I don't think we should be glamorizing uh, creation of nuclear weaponry. Yeah, kids might see it and think to themselves, well, I could put together a, a portable nuclear device. <laughs> yeah, look how easy it is. I saw, I think it was on Letterboxd. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but just they were a genius whoever wrote it. They said, does for building a nuclear bomb what ghosts did for pottery. <laughs> wonderful there is actually genuinely a shot of all four hands from pierce brosnan and joanna cassidy assembling the bomb at the same time yeah that is like a ghost shot right there wonderful i did like that sequence though it was very like tactile i liked that they were showing us the physical putting together of the bomb i thought it was kind of like shot in an interesting way it was one of the procedural moments that i was actually like "Ooh, i'm actually kind of leaning forward watching this Maybe I had sweat coming down my brow at the time. I don't know. You, you were getting as hot and heavy as Pierce Brosnan was <laughs> watching an orgy. Exactly. I was biting my fist, yeah. You certainly were. Um, I, I suppose before we wrap up, I, I had a couple of like notes. Um, Jamel, did you have any final notes you want to bring up? I think my final note would be that this is this is not like the strongest picture in the world, but there's like a lot. If if you're into this genre, like if you like Le Carre stuff at all, I think you'll mm -hmm. find a lot to like about this movie. Um, I think there's enough of what is compelling about that type of spy film, the more sort of grounded, um, you know, quote unquote, realistic spy film that uh, you'll find it. You'll find it kind of fun to watch. If you're a fan of the Americans, you might find this interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I think, I think, you know, on, on the, on the whole, 
I wouldn't say to someone like Russ to go see the fourth protocol, but if this is in your groove, like if, if you, for example, really like Ian, Ian Richardson, then like go see this. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Also, if you're a fan, a fan of uh, little Nikita, it's kind of got that vibe going there as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would agree there, Jamal. I think there's there's things to enjoy. And I think just on the cast alone, that if you're a fan of Michael Caine or Pierce Brosnan, there's enough there for you to get in and probably enjoy some of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a couple of notes. Firstly, uh, there's a Remo Williams poster sighting in the film, <laughs> uh, which is so great to see Remo Williams coming back. He has his next adventure, finally, in the fourth protocol. <laughs> I've got a poster follow-up to you. Michael Caine in his house has a poster of Kermit and Miss Piggy. And, of course, he would co-star with them uh, five years later in The Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah, and turn in a career best performance. He's great. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I was blown away. We literally just covered that at Christmas on the Patreon, and uh, I, I forgot how good that film was. Yeah. Just wanted to also just note a couple really cool Michael Caine moments. I love the scene where he's tracking the blue car in the traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, stop i thought that was actually pretty tense one of the few really tense moments in the finale that worked for me and also i enjoyed the scene of him breaking to the safe on new year's eve uh you know we probably should have saved this movie for new year's 2024 or something but uh you know what it was fun to watch it it certainly was and it was uh it was a classic example i actually wrote this in my notes of show don't tell mm-hmm. yeah you know he's a adept agent just by how he handles that tense situation of breaking into someone's house. And by the end, you see the, the classified documents. You're like, oh, something's amiss here. Leads into the film. Perfect. And Cam, I think it's worth mentioning. There is a little nod to Spy Hard's history in this film. Please reveal. Well, not not quite like the orgy next door. But uh, <laughs> so when Joanna Cassidy's character first turns up in the film, who's playing the... Uh, the, the fake wife of the Russian agent played by Pierce Brosnan, they meet outside the Royal Albert Hall on the infamous Harry Palmer steps. But no one gets kicked down those steps, right? No one gets kicked down those steps, and there is no phone box obscuring the view. That's right, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. You know, this is Michael Caine essentially playing kind of a Harry Palmer, so of course you've got to have the Royal Albert Hall. Absolutely. It's, it's a stunning building. I, I had some photos there earlier this year when we did the uh, the Bond 60th concert, which was wonderful. But that does bring up an interesting topic, Cam. We've mentioned Harry Palmer a couple of times in this review, and you know my feelings about the Ipcris file. And I'm sure we, you all listening at home know my feelings about the Ipcris file too. But do you think at times this was a conscious nod to Harry Palmer? 100%. Yeah, I think Michael Caine knows his wheelhouse. While the Ipcris file and its sequels maybe aren't the best known in North America, mm-hmm. um, this is a movie made with British money. Um, it's using you know British locations. I think Michael Caine knows what at least that audience is looking to him for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could say Michael Caine is the true British agent. It is interesting that Michael Caine is such a spy icon. But it's like he doesn't have the big flashy James Bond, Jason Bourne kind of roles. He has like, you know, the Harry Palmer roles and then these various kind of similar to Harry Palmer type movies like this or Blue Ice. But it's just interesting how you can be like a spy movie icon without kind of like that that massive, you know, home run box office smash spy movie. Yeah, it's interesting because if you ask people what, 
they think of when they think of Michael Caine. It's like Zulu, the Italian job. Batman. Uh, Batman, the prestige. A lot of the Nolan stuff, for sure, yeah. A lot of the Nolan stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's if it's Harry Palmer. You're spy fans. Of course they're going to answer Harry Palmer, but we're the minority in this. The, 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 great, the great minority, but we're the minority nonetheless. Even um, Alfie, even his work in Hannah and Her Sisters, you know, which he won the Oscar for, um, I think he's just viewed much more as like just an actor with a very diverse filmography mm. versus like really honing in on spy cred. He just has that sort of British swagger about him. I think that really helps some of these 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 spies that we deal with on the show. But but let's move on. Cam, did you have any other notes? I want to touch on some of the Bond connections with this movie because look, Brosnan denied the Bond role in 1987. And I actually came across an interview where he talked about Dalton getting the role. He said he was not bitter at all. He was legit excited that they cast Dalton, who was a great actor, very respected. But he said he hadn't watched Living Daylights at the time of the interview because it was still a little too raw. Um, But you go through this movie and knowing where history is going to take Brosnan and he's going to wind up getting, you know, Bond in 1995. There's some interesting connections here with his Bond uh, pedigree. You know, you look at, for example, the fact he's on a BMW motorbike the entire film, which, of course, was what he was riding throughout Tomorrow Never Dies, doing the whole bike chase there. Mm -hmm. That really jumped out to me. When they talk about his cover in this movie, um, they say he's Ross, James Edward Ross. They phrase it very similar to, you know, Bond, James Bond. It's like they started with the last name, and then gave the first name. That has to be intentional, right? It, it has to be. I mean, they knew what was going on. And this, I, I think you alleged earlier in, in the behind the scenes that this was his alternate choice after Living Daylights. Well, this was, I think, what the work he went to after the Living Daylights fell through, yes. Sure. I don't think he was choosing between the two. <laughs> yeah, two scripts. Hmm, what do I go for? Hmm. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, has to, it has to totally be a nod to it. And I think... I, 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 much as I understand he's being very political in that, that sort of conversation, you, the interview you saw, there is definitely a sore spot. I mean, you watch the Everything or Nothing documentary. He talks about how he feels like he, he had a rough ride with that. Yeah. And also, you know, he would get Bond and we'd get Goldeneye in 1995. Great movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of moments that just kind of like made me think of Goldeneye in this film. A lot of the obviously Russian stuff and the Soviet elements. But there's like the sequence, for example, where it's showing the satellite dish station, you know, in the snowy terrain surrounded by like trees. It seemed so golden eye that it just totally jumped out to me, especially when you cut to the control room and it's all the tech people on their computers working in this kind of darkened environment. Just felt like, oh, man, they were like almost forecasting where Brosnan would go. Yeah, little did they know because Goldeneye was a completely made up script. So it wasn't like it was taken from a book, but I... <laughs> It just yeah, those you got those nods that you're talking about, and obviously BMW had the contract with Bond during those four Brosnan films. He was driving BMW cars for the most part, I think, uh, except for at the end he has a, a uh, Aston Martin in, in Die Another Day. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then lastly, there is a moment I have no idea what this means. There is a part where the KGB chief is in a car with an underling, and he basically threatens him with putting him in a jeep in Afghanistan. And this is coming out the same year as The Living Daylights, which features Bond in a jeep in Afghanistan. Mm, okay. And I was like, subtle shot? 
I, I have no idea. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know much about American geopolitics around the time, but were or, or Russian geopolitics, I should say, but were they occupying Afghanistan at that time? Was, was it? No, it was a tail end of the Russian occupation of, of Afghanistan, and the United States was still funneling weapons to the Mujahideen. It's why at the end mm. of the original um, cut of Rambo 3, there's like the title that's like, this film is dedicated to the brave warriors of the Mujahideen, which is one of the funniest things in cinema to me. <laughs> that's <laughs> aged wonderfully. That's in Rambo 3? Yeah. Yeah. If, if wow. I think if you, like, in... It, if you find like a DVD or a Blu-ray, you might it'll be there on streaming. Like if you rent it, it may not be there. But Rambo Three, which takes place in Afghanistan, ends with this like you know we the filmmakers support the insurgent warriors of the Mujahideen. Oh, right. <laughs> I saw a Rambo marathon when they were putting out the 2008 Rambo. They held a marathon in Vancouver and showed the first four, basically the four Rambo movies. Uh, that existed at that point. And I remember when that card came up, the entire audience burst into laughter at the end of Rambo 3. (laughs) Who who knew The Living Daylights, The Fourth Protocol, and Rambo 3 were so interconnected? No kidding. Mm, It was mm. a trend at the time. It certainly was. Uh, I had a couple uh, additional notes. Firstly, it's great to see Michael Caine beating up a couple of skinheads. That was a weird scene. Oh, that was great. That was a great scene. I really liked that. I don't know why it was in the movie, but I I liked to see it. Apparently, it's cut out of the TV versions very often because it is so, like, it's an easy moment to cut that has no impact on the plot. I wrote that those dudes got Kane owed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you definitely peaked in this episode. Well done there, Cam. Well done. Thank you. But maybe we should take a quick second just to talk about the Bond that could have been. Because just looking at him in this film, I know instantly why they wanted him for Bond. Like, I know what we see in 94 shot to 95 when the film comes out, but that's a whole seven years after this fact. Seeing him in this sort of, I think, mid-30s, you were saying? Mm-hmm, yeah. This this is like the prime age where I think he would have made the biggest impact as Bond. Now, I mean, I say not to say he didn't make a big impact. His Bond is the reason why I like James Bond. I just, watching this today, I just couldn't help but think about what we could have had. He just feels like he was born to play that role. And I think I love Timothy Dalton. And I love parts of The Living Daylights. I'm not a big fan of License to Kill anymore these days. But I just feel like plugging Pierce Brosnan into both of those films would have just brought them both up a bit. I had always had the question in the back of my head of, was he too young for the job at that point? Like, could a younger Brosnan have pulled off Bond? And I really didn't have any evidence to kind of lead me one way or the other. It was just always like a thought. Like sometimes, you know, an actor ages into a role perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder if that was the case with him. I know Dalton, they wanted him to play Bond when he was in like his mid-20s. And he felt he was too young for the role until later on down the road. Watching this movie was confirmation to me that Brosnan could have played Bond in 1987. It would not have been a case of someone who looks a little too wet behind the ears to be playing that role. I think he has that kind of deadly assassin quality. And I could totally see him bringing that to like Living Daylights, where it is a colder, icier Bond for much of it, or even License to Kill. Like I can see this Brosnan in, in this movie working in those films. I mean, this is a conversation for another day, but I wonder if License to Kill would be anywhere near the movie it was with him in it. I don't think it would have had any of the hard edge. I do not think it would have been a 15. I think if it had been the Brosnan of this movie working in License to Kill, yes. I just don't think they would have framed it that way. I think he would have been happy with his performance of what the Living Daylights version of Bond yeah. was, and that would have carried through. So there would have been 
more jokes. I think. Yeah. I mean, not to say License to Kill is sans jokes, but it's not a jokey film. And also, like, when they cast a Bond, they're looking to change what the tone of the franchise is. And so when they hire Brosnan, this movie doesn't exist, right? So, like, are they just looking at Remington Steele and some of his past work and going, this guy's incredibly charming. We want to go for something a little bit lighter. Because it's, yeah, I, I could see them coming out of those more films, which were really popular, and saying we can kind of continue that with kind of a younger, sexier Bond. Well, I think we'll put a lid on that there, Cam, because any more talk of License to Kill, we probably have to go on our honeymoon. Yeah. The other thing I noticed in this movie was just the the element of the protests over disarming nuclear weapons, which was a mm-hmm. big deal at the time. Sure. And also ties into another very noteworthy 1987 film, not a great one, but Superman Four: The Quest for Peace, which was actually, you know, Christopher Reeve had a lot of power on that film and pushed very hard for that to be the sole theme of the movie. So it's just interesting to see that, you know, very much place and time and very much represented here. It's also interesting as well if you look at sort of the geopolitics of what's happening around the time this film comes out, mm-hmm. because it's being shot. Uh, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, but literally weeks after it comes out, the Berlin Wall comes down, and that basically signals the end of the Cold War for a lot of people. Yeah, so nuclear disarmament was definitely in the air at that time. Yeah. I have one final question for everyone. Now, there's a guy who's uh, selling secrets to South Africans, it turns out to be to the Russians, uh, early on in the film, and he's given two choices and ends up having a third. But the two choices are pliers and a carving knife or newspapers in jail. Yes. Which would you rather have to suffer? I think I would take uh, pliers and a carving knife than newspaper in jail. Uh, I think I'd take the newspaper in jail. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think I would too. It just seems so more prolonged. Like it's just it's one hour of like ow or like thirty years of your life. You assume one hour. This could last for days or even weeks. <laughs> What's going on in your twisted mind, Cam? <laughs> I don't know, like, look at so many of these spy movies we've tackled where someone gets captured and tortured over a prolonged period of time. No thanks, I'll take the prison and the newspapers. Uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I don't want the taken one where he gets the, the thing stepped into his legs and then left to be electrocuted to death, that's fair play. No, yeah. no, exactly. Yeah, not great. Well, um, we've reached the, the critical question on the show. Is the fourth protocol making the knock list? Now, we have a guest cam, so please just tell Jamel what we're doing here on the knock list. Yeah, so the knocklist is our uh, painful acronym for Need to See Official Classics of the Spy Hearts podcast, where every week after we've talked about a movie, we debate whether it belongs in the pantheon of all-time great spy films. So some ones that have made the list, Three Days of the Condor, Day of the Jackal made the list, but even some oddballs, like we put Hannah, uh, starring Shersha Ronan, on the list, which we thought was a really interesting entry, trying different things. So it's open to all types of movies. It's not just, you know, the spy who came in from the colds. But that's essentially what the knock list is. Yeah. So the question is, we'll have three votes because there's three of us. So Jamel, you get the first vote. Do you think the fourth protocol should be on the list of the best spy movies of all time? I don't think so. Yeah. I, I, th- I think we've all telegraphed our votes pretty well uh, <laughs> on this episode. Maybe it's a redundant question. But uh, how far away from a yes do you think it is? You know, it's not that far away from me. Yes, there's a version of this movie, right? That may- maybe it's the John Frankenheimer directed version of this movie, right? That is like it's totally mm-hmm. a top tier spy film. Um, uh, maybe it's uh, I'm trying to think of another director who would who would do something like this. Um, 
uh, very well. Even like a Philip Noyce or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, a uh, an Andrew Davis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a version of this movie that's 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 like a four star picture easily, uh, but it's not this one. And it's probably more propulsive, and that's probably the key issue. Yeah, that's that's the the missing ingredient. There is just there needs to be um, more dynamism. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's one note. It's all still to play for. Cam, you're up next. What have you got? Yeah, it's a no for me as well. As I said up front, it's kind of like a potboiler version of Day of the Jackal, which means it's fun. And I also know that a lot of our listeners are really into Pierce Brosnan and were you know, really into our Bond coverage when we were tackling all his films. So I would recommend they check this movie out if they haven't seen it because it's just a different side of Brosnan. And one, I wish we got a little more of character actor Brosnan trying different swings like this because I think he's actually really interesting. So I would say to Bond fans, it's interesting and Brosnan fans, but... In terms of the Alzheimer's, no, no, no. I, 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 uh, I'm inclined to agree. So it's two no's. So my vote doesn't really count anyway. But I'm inclined to agree. I think, as I said on my sort of top line review at the start, I think there's a lot of potential in this film, and I think it misses the mark. I don't know whether that's script or that's director. I'm not gonna. I, I mean, I couldn't do either of those jobs myself. So all I can do is comment. But I, I definitely enjoyed parts of this film. It wasn't a slog to watch twice. Not at all. And I think I would watch it again if it was on TV. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I can see that. Yeah, isn't this like the perfect like four p.m. Uh, afternoon movie? Like, I totally can see a world where this would have aired every day after school when I was younger. Yeah, like, yeah, I think it 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 would definitely play over here. USA Network Saturday afternoon. Totally. Uh, if we if we're making area appropriate, I think it would be on BBC Two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> the Brits, the Brits agree with me. Thanks, guys. Love you. Yeah, it just occurred to me how strange it is that we had like a USA network that like had it was like not like a particularly patriotic channel, just sort of like that's you know, unlike the uh, the military base in this film, which is very patriotic. Every song is about the USA. Uh, that jukebox is rigged in that, <laughs> which is not having grown up on military bases. That's generally not that's not how it is. <laughs> I, I, I've seen Top Gun. Like I, I have an idea of what it's like on military basis. <laughs> Bring it back to Tony Scott. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where's the piano in the corner that someone was playing? That's what I really wanted to see. Mm. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about Fourth Protocol. Three no's, and as such, the Fourth Protocol did not make the knock list, and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Now, before we let you go, Jamel, firstly, I want to thank you for hopping aboard the show. It's been great having you with us this week. Um, where can people find more from you? All right. Um, first of all, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, folks can find me either at the New York Times, uh, where I'm a columnist, and my column runs generally every Tuesday and Friday. Uh, and then uh, my podcast, uh, Unclear and Present Danger, we're just wherever podcasts are found. Uh, on Twitter, we're Unclear Pod, and then on Patreon, which is Patreon show is just Cold War films. The last uh, Cold War, and actually at this point, World War II films as well. We just did um, the Ministry of Fear. Oh, uh, mm. the uh, uh, Fritz Lang film, great movie. Yeah, um, and that you can find at uh, Patreon.com/slash/UnclearPod. So that's where you can find me, and I'm on Twitter for as long as that's around. Yeah, well, by the time this comes <laughs> out, you never know what Musk has done to it. To be fair uh it, it we'll have links in the show notes below to all of this and yeah we didn't really talk a lot about it but you're a, a bona fide 
journalist, a columnist in the New York Times. You've definitely raised this up this week, so I'm very happy and pleased <laughs> and, and uh, all the lovely words about the fact that you've taken the time to speak with us because, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's nice to have a professional in our midst for once. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Jamel. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about the fourth protocol. I want to thank Jamel once again for coming on the show. And if you want to hear more about Unclear and Present Danger or any of his work for the New York Times, there'll be links in the show notes below. And Cam, this is usually the point where I throw to you and ask what we're talking about next week. But I'd be remiss if I didn't remind everyone that later this week we are speaking to Christatos himself. Mr. Julian Glover is joining us on the show. It's a fantastic chat. Make sure you will hit subscribe and it'll be with you this Friday. But Cam, what are we talking about next week? Yes, we are tackling a completely different type of spy film. We are going back to the year 1926 to have a look at the Buster Keaton silent film classic, The General. Almost 100 years old. That's right. Yeah, getting close. Yeah, scary, isn't it? I I have no knowledge of this film. I know who Buster Keaton is. I'm not even sure how this is a spy film. Uh, I'm pretty sure. It's, is it a silent movie? It is indeed, yeah. Wow, okay. Uh, but we do have a fantastic guest uh, joining us again, I think for the third time he's been on the show. Uh, yeah, that's right. And um, we're going to be playing a lot of clips in this episode as well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> enjoy that enjoy that and i'll be bringing along my piano so i can play along with it to give it a soundtrack that's right yeah so your mission folks should you choose to accept it is to deal with the whiplash that we always deal with here on the show from going from one type of spy film to the other and join us for the general from 1926 uh if you like what you heard on the show please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast it helps us in our journey to become the world's greatest spy movie podcast if we aren't already and uh, of course make sure you follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners remember these wise words stay well and stay silent 